I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just, I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for, for being a listener and hanging out with me. So the code podcast10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com, your next order of protein powder. You can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. So we don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrate it, that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it if I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, and I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you wanna give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and wanna take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is gonna get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Today's guest is Dr. Nicole Birkins. She has a 22 plus year career in providing parents with simple, effective and research-based strategies to get to the root of their children's anxiety, attention, mood and behavioral challenges. She is one of the world's leading holistic child psychologists and her down to earth approach inspires thousands of parents to trust their instincts, focus on one step at a time and never give up hope. She built and runs a multidisciplinary evaluation and treatment clinic. She's a best-selling author, a published researcher, award-winning therapist, and a mom of four. It's such a pleasure to have Nicole on today's show. Dr. Nicole, I have been waiting to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, so excited to be here. This is going to be great. Oh, well, can you talk about becoming a holistic psychologist and what that looks like and what your practice and workload looks like day to day? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, this idea of holistic psychology. It's a newer sort of um, type of work in psychology. And really, it grew out of what I was seeing um, as the needs of my patients and their families as I went along in my career. I was trained in a very traditional clinical psychology program, was trained actually as a teacher before that. That was my first career. So I'd had a lot of education and a lot of experience in things like child development, learning, disabilities, diagnosing, and treating kids using psychological tools. But what I began to see the more I got into practice, especially kids with neurodevelopmental kinds of issues like autism and ADHD, seizure kinds of issues, uh, more severe mental health and behavioral kinds of disorders, I started running into some walls with the tools that I had. And I was like, well, kids are sort of getting better, but they're coming in on more and more medications and they're not getting better, you know, as much as I think that they should be. And I started to see this pattern of a lot of physiological 
things in their health histories. So when I really started to delve into, you know, parents saying, you know, gosh, my kid had you know, nonstop ear infections for the first four years of life, or my child has never slept through the night in their entire life. You know, I'd hear that from like parents of a 10 year old, like my child's never slept well. Um, you know, oh, my child is such a picky eater. My child only eats, you know, a very limited number of things, or my child's been constipated almost their entire life. So I started, you know, hearing these things. And again, you know, trained in the traditional model of clinical psychology and child psychology, we don't talk about the physiology of that, right? Outside of pharmacology, which we can get into if you want to, but, you know, it's really more of this separation that we see, unfortunately, in the fields of medicine and mental health, where it's kind of like, oh, everything from the neck down, that's, you know, the field of medicine and everything in the head, well, that's the field of mental health. And of course, that's ridiculous, right? Because the brain and the body are completely interconnected. But that, that's really how, you know, most of us have been trained. And so I began to see these patterns. And at the same time, I started noticing some things in my own children. By that point in my career, I had four kids. And I started noticing some things in my younger two related to their behavior and some health conditions and issues that they were having, eczema and chronic ear infections and, uh, you know, strep infections and things like that. And so it all sort of came together for me of, huh, I wonder if there really is a connection between all of these physiological health lifestyle kinds of things I'm seeing in kids and their mental health or their developmental kinds of symptoms. And as I started to delve into the research, I was amazed that there was this whole wealth of research literature on the connection between physical health, between what's going on in the body and what's going on in the brain and mental health. And I really was unaware of it. And I think that's true for the vast majority of clinicians who work in the field of mental health, although it's changing some, which is good. So that's really been the journey of the last decade of my career is looking at mental health, looking at brain development, looking at behavior of kids and adults in a much more holistic way, looking at all of the pieces that are going on for them in their body, in their relationships, in, you know, their, what's happening at school, what's happening, you know, with their uh, symptoms in terms of things like anxiety and mood, looking at all of those pieces and saying, okay, what do I know about this child and what's going on in all of these areas? And then how do we put together a treatment plan that's really going to address the root of the symptoms that we're seeing? Because so much of what is done for kids and for adults um, in the realm of mental health is really just symptom focused. And if we're going to just put band-aids on things, I mean, you can get some improvement, but you really need to get to the root of it. And so that's what I see as my role now as a holistic psychologist is really looking at what's going on at the root of these symptoms, these behaviors, these issues, and then how do we treat that? I love that so much. I really, I, we need more of you out there. Um, I would say I, I treat mostly adults, um, but again, as you, as we talked about before the podcast, you treat mostly children, but a lot of times you'll end up helping their, their parents. And I am the same. I'll help mostly parents and then occasionally we'll get their children. And there are definitely more children on medication than I've, than I've seen in the past, you know, I've seen an increase in the past decade and I love your approach. I would love to give our listeners the tools at assessing their own children, their own situation, their nieces, their nephews, and seeing, you know, because so many of us are like, oh yeah, Bobby's had constant constipation his whole life, even when he was in diapers. And Sebastian, my son, you know, it's been, he was covered in eczema a few weeks after we were home with him. And it w- it's been a constant battle of eczema and food allergies, you know, and I look at his start, a big dose of antibiotics, going to Children's Hospital Los Angeles, like, that was heartbreaking for me. Cause I'm like, no, it's microbiome. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I know too much. Don't tell me what you're doing. Um, so I would love to, to make for you to maybe go through how you would look at each part of, of a child's life. Holistically, you talked about the body, their relationships, yeah. their mood. Where do you start? Yeah, I think it's really important as a starting point for parents to even, um, and, and for professionals, but particularly for parents to understand that if you're seeing 
behavioral, learning, mood, anxiety, attention, any of those kinds of challenges in your child, that there are reasons for that, that no child, uh, you know, comes into this world just trying to make their life and everyone else's life difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Although sometimes it can feel that way as a parent, I totally get that. But there's always reasons underneath these behaviors and these challenges. And so when you're seeing these kinds of issues coming up, to get curious about them and to seek out professionals who also are curious about what's going on there that aren't just going to say, well, you know, your child's inattentive, they must have ADHD, you know, here's your riddle and prescription. Or, well, you know, your child is biting and hitting and, you know, running around in the classroom and causing all kinds of problems at home. They're just attention seeking. Here's, you know, the reward and punishment system that you need to be using. Okay, but what's really going on there? Why would a child really be struggling to focus their attention in the classroom? Why would a child be so dysregulated um, that sort of their activity level is, is hyper all the time. They can't manage themselves well. We need to get curious and understand that there are always root causes and reasons, and many of them are rooted in what's going on physiologically. So I think that's the first most important starting point and, and something I'm so passionate about parents understanding is your child's brain is connected to their body. What goes on in one impacts what goes on in the other. And so while you might be sent to, let's say, a child psychologist or a social worker or something like that, if you're having behavioral concerns about your child or concerns about anxiety, understand that there are probably also some things that you need to look at in the physical realm, whether that is things like, is the child getting enough good quality sleep at night? What are they eating and how is their body responding to the foods that they're eating? Have they had chronic infections that have not really been adequately treated? Uh, is there some kind of trauma that's gone on for them? You know, looking at the all of the factors there um, and finding professionals that can help you do that because certainly a parent doesn't know all the things to look at. And quite frankly, a lot of professionals don't either. But to understand that there's probably lots of factors there and to seek out professionals who can help you identify those, I think is, is the first thing because so many parents get so demoralized when their kid is having struggles, whether it's a child who is struggling to learn or it's a child who maybe is struggling with all kinds of significant behavior challenges or the teacher's calling all the time, you know, your kid won't focus, they're getting into trouble or, you know, parents blame themselves a lot. What is it that I'm doing wrong? Why can't I effectively parent this kid? Or we also can get into a cycle of blaming the child. Why can't you just do what you're supposed to do, right? And the reality is that there are reasons that these things are happening. It's not the parent's fault. It's not the kid's fault. And we need to approach it from a stance of curiosity of what's really going on here. So we can dig into, from a strategy standpoint, some of the main areas that parents, I think, can be starting to address even without professional help, if that would be helpful. I would love that so much. We want, I I love tools for the moms out there and dads out there listening. Like you said, we all like either blame ourselves or we don't, you know, I feel like being a parent, we want to read all the books and absorb everything and try our best and learn strategies. I mean, I'm so impressed with even some of the professionals like yourself on Instagram, where they're sharing even how to communicate with your child like that leaning into like, I understand I would be upset about X, Y, and Z too. And like just being seen and then laying the boundary down instead of just dismissive. Like that's been such a major strategy for us and our family. And like a bash will be bawling about something. I call Sebastian bash. He'll be bawling about something and, and something I'm telling him not to, that he can't do. And will come to me for a hug. And I'm like, this is so great. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's just so much better than, I don't know. It's, it's amazing. The strategies we're, we're given. So yes, that's what I want to do. I want to, even you just saying that see, noticing if your child has anxiety or they're having, they're melting down, or maybe their emotion, their response isn't matching the situation, like things where we can say like, this doesn't make me feel like they're regulating. Right. Mm-hmm. Or this doesn't feel mm-hmm. right. Even just recognizing that. And then saying like, how do I broaden out and say like, where do I look next? Yeah. So give us all of your tips and tricks. (laughs) Dr. Nicole, that's why you're here. Well, so (laughs) let's actually start with that piece that you just referenced about parent-child relationship. 
because that's critical. It's never the parent's fault that a child is struggling and dysregulated. When we talk about with dysregulation, dysregulation is really this state of not being able to have a response that's in alignment with what the conditions are, right? So an example of emotional dysregulation, I think these terms are thrown around a lot now. And so so let's dissect that a little bit because this idea of dysregulation is important. Emotional dysregulation would be like, um, well, I had a parent the other day say, you know, I cut her sandwich the way that I normally cut it. And she like burst into tears and had this full on temper tantrum because that wasn't the way she wanted it cut. That would be an example of emotional dysregulation, right? A response on the child's part that is way, way, way beyond what we would consider appropriate for the situation. Behavioral dysregulation, a kid who maybe is uh, not able to manage their activity level for the situation. So the teacher is saying like, you need to sit down and you need to you know, be at your desk doing this. And the kid's body is so physically dysregulated that they're running around or, or tapping their pencil a lot. So this dysregulation is sort of the problems that come up when, when the body, when the brain can't sort of manage the situation in what we would consider an appropriate way. And some of that's very normal developmentally. A toddler or a preschooler melting down over something like a sandwich being cut, you know, we go, oh my gosh, that's so ridiculous. It's also totally developmentally appropriate for that age. Now, if we have a 10-year-old doing that, that is something, you know, obviously that's not developmentally appropriate that we want to address. But this idea of dysregulation is important because one of the ways that we help kids, actually the primary way that we help kids develop better regulation and self-regulation, how to manage uncomfortable feelings, how to manage, you know, situations in an appropriate way is by doing something called co-regulating with them, where we are responding in a way that they can mirror. So they're totally beside themselves and upset. And we respond in a calm, regulated way that then helps their nervous system to settle down, their brain and body to settle down, So they can learn how to manage through that. So this idea, and there's a lot of wonderful um, people, especially on um, Instagram and Facebook right now, sharing a lot of valuable tools for this. But that parent-child relationship is foundational to anything else that we might do with kids, whether they have a diagnosis or not. Helping parents to have tools for how do you stay calm when your child is not? Even if you have a kid with really, really challenging, dysregulated behavior, how do you manage your own emotions and behaviors to be able to support them through that? You know, those are skills that we can help parents learn. And I think it's, it's really important for parents to be partnering with a professional, with a coach, with someone who can give them feedback and tools to manage that because it's not easy. You know, I am a parent of four myself. My kids are older now, 14 to 21. But even I doing this work professionally day in and day out and not necessarily a very objective observer of my own interactions with my kids. And so we can all benefit from having somebody who can give us some tools, give us some feedback that helps us improve in terms of how we are communicating with our kids, how we're responding to their challenges, how we're supporting them through these things, because it looks different at different phases of the lifespan too. So, you know, how we co-regulate and support a two-year-old is different than a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old. So I think this idea of parent-child relationship is critical. And it's something that there are a lot, there's a lot more information and research about it now than there was even when I started my parenting journey 21 years ago. And certainly than when I was a kid, right? Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents did the best that they knew how to do. But now we're understanding that some of the ways that we were parented, like go to your room until you can stop crying and, you know, come out with a smile on your face, or I'm going to spank you if you don't get it together, or, you know, these kinds of things. We know now the research shows that those actually are not effective tools for disciplining kids, for helping them to learn how to regulate themselves. But it's tough because many of us were not raised in this way. We didn't have a model for how to empathize with a child, for how to keep ourselves calm, for how to talk a kid 
through regulating themselves in challenging circumstances. We just don't have a model for that because our parents didn't know to do that. And so I think that that's, that's a foundational thing, whether a child has autism or they have anxiety or they have whatever challenges they may have, focusing on that parent-child connection and relationship has to be a primary focus. Love it. Love that so, so much. So that's, that's, I think, you know, a foundational piece to get information and support around, around that. As we get into some of the physiological stuff, you know, often people will ask me about the nutrition piece. Well, I should rephrase that. Parents who are in the world of holistic health and wellness and nutrition themselves who have an interest in that, they often will ask me about the nutrition connection. The reality is the vast majority of people in the world, parents who are having challenges with their kids have no idea that what they're feeding their kids is probably a part of what's happening. And and, um, that's why I get so excited about the work that you do and the work that I'm doing. It's, It's empowering people by giving them information that they aren't being told. When a parent brings a child into their pediatrician's office or into, you know, the preschool classroom or, you know, wherever they they might be interfacing with professionals and they're bringing up concerns like, wow, you know, my child uh, cannot settle down to sleep and doesn't sleep for more than two hours at a time. Or my kid's so hyper, he can't even focus to stick with a play activity or my kid is so anxious that he is, you know, not leaving the house to go do things with friends or family members. To me, knowing what I know now and what I understand about the research between the research connection between food and nutrition and mental health, asking about a child's diet and eating habits and nutrition status is one of the first things we should be looking at. But unfortunately, Most parents, by the time they get to my clinic, have seen numerous professionals and no one has raised that question or that issue with them. And that's so unfortunate because to me, nutrition and diet are are some of the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to supporting a child's behavior, learning, attention, anxiety, all of those things. And, you know, there's just some basics there that we should be addressing with all families around this. And sometimes parents go, well, you know, I don't want to get into all these complicated diets. Let's just talk about some basics that are helpful. Things like stabilizing blood sugar throughout the day and what that looks like for a kid who's on what I call the blood sugar roller coaster all day long, which is the vast majority of American kids, at least, where they're eating a breakfast of you know, simple carbohydrates and sugars in the form of, you know, breakfast cereals with cow's milk on it or pastries or, uh, you know, Pop-Tarts or some of the popular kids' yogurts, you know, things like that, things that kids sort of like and that are popular in America for kids to eat for breakfast, and it spikes their blood sugar. And then they're hyper and inattentive and their mood might be great, but they are really dysregulated. And then they crash 60 to 90 minutes later and they're lethargic and they're grumpy and they're irritable. So we hand them goldfish crackers or we hand them, you know, a fruit leather or we hand them a cheese, you know, whatever it is. And then they're back up and then they crash again. And there's so many kids riding this blood sugar roller coaster all day long. And, you know, people think about blood sugar regulation in the realm of things like diabetes, right? Right. So most parents will say, well, my kid's not diabetic. Why don't you worry about that? Well, because blood sugar regulation has everything to do with how our brain is functioning. And when your kid is spiking and crashing with their blood sugar throughout the day, that is not having a positive impact on their mood, on their behavioral regulation. It is not supportive of keeping at, you know, the ability to manage anxiety, you know, learning, attention, all of these things. And what we have to remember is these kinds of things impact children even more than they impact adults. Kids are not just miniature adults. They are in a phase from birth to 18-ish, we could even make the argument into the early 20s, a very rapid, very profound brain growth and body growth and development. And so things like blood sugar dysregulation impact a kid much more so even than they would an adult. And so it's important to understand that loss of sleep impacts a kid much more significantly than it does an adult. So when we think about that blood sugar regulation piece for kids, one of the simplest 
things that we can start to do to improve these kinds of challenges behaviorally and learning wise for kids is just to make sure they're eating consistently throughout the day, making sure that we're giving them protein with their meals, particularly in the morning. I kid you not, I will have parents who will call me 48 to 72 hours after an appointment where I say, let's just see what happens if we start giving a good source of protein in the morning before your kid heads off to school. And they will call me two to three days later and go, I can't believe this is my same child. The teacher actually sent me an email that said something positive for the first time all year. My kid wasn't a total grumpy, you know, irritable mess when they, um, you know, headed out the door. So protein, healthy fats, looking at kids need carbs. Please hear me on that. Do not, don't take this to the extreme of, well, you know, carbs and sugar are bad. Actually, kids need good sources of carbs all through the day to fuel the rapid development that they're in. So unless it's an extreme circumstance with, you know, seizures or things like that, we want kids to be having good amounts of carbs throughout the day. But carbs in the form of whole grains, not muffins and donuts and things like that, right? And paired with healthy fats, paired with um, proteins, that's really key. And making sure that we're looking at on product labels, what does that added sugar line say on there? Because really the goal for kids is to stick to no more than 25 grams of added sugar in a day. And while that might sound like a lot, you start looking at that protein bar even that you might be giving your child or that, you know, yogurt or something like that. You see, oh my gosh, you know, there's a popular kid's yogurt that has as much sugar in it as a can of soda pop. That is almost their entire allotment for the day. Some of the juices and some of the sports drinks, when you look at that, it's like, wow, That is an entire allotment of added sugar for the day. And that doesn't take into account anything else that they're eating or drinking. So that's another big piece is just starting to look at how much added sugar does my child have in the day? Because the research is crystal clear on this. People can try to argue with me all day long about how sugar isn't bad for kids. Nothing is good or bad. It's all about how much they're getting in the context of it, but the research is crystal clear that excessive amounts of added sugars do really bad things to the human brain, particularly when we're talking about children. And people tend to think of this nutrition piece around a child's weight, uh, you know, or around those types of things with physical health. And yes, that's important. But in this context, we're talking about brain development. We're talking about behavior. We're talking about mental health. And sugar is a big piece of that. So looking at how to do, um, you know, protein, healthy fat, carbs, reducing the amount of added sugar. And another really simple one is make sure your kid's getting enough water. There are the majority of kids studies show at least in the U.S. are walking around with at least a mild level of dehydration, if not moderate to significant. And again, you know, some kids, we physically, it's so bad that we see it, dry lips, dry skin, kind of, you know, just not looking, um, not looking well, but even mild levels of dehydration, which you won't notice physically in them. Those mild levels we see in the research, it has a negative impact on their learning. It has a negative impact on their attention, on their behavior, on their anxiety. So making sure that they're getting enough water, not sports drinks, not soda pop, not juices, but getting enough water throughout the day. These are some of the simple things that I see day in and day out in my practice make a significant difference and that don't involve all kinds of complicated diets. And and there are some kids who really do benefit from things like elimination diets, looking at removing allergens from the diet, kids who just their body and brain cannot handle things like gluten or dairy. So there absolutely is a time and a place for looking at more significant dietary intervention. But let's just start with the basics. And for most kids, having a good handle on some of the basics when it comes to nutrition and food makes a really big difference. 
I can't even tell you how happy I am to hear you to just get on that soapbox and go for it. Because for me personally, I mean, it's been a decade of preaching blood sugar balance to even my adult clients, teaching them all about starting their day with protein and getting a significant amount of protein. What that blood sugar roller coaster you're talking about is all about. And becoming a mom, it was so important to me that my clients knew how to do that throughout pregnancy and know how to do that with their kids. It is so critical. I see it in Sebastian as a two and a half year old. Like if there is a day where he doesn't start with either he's, you know, having chicken sausage or he's like having eggs or he's, you know, having, um, a chia seed, a hemp heart smoothie situation with, uh, with me, you know, that type of a day is such a different Sebastian than the days where we went to brunch with grandma and he got something else. And you see it. I see it because he's such an even keeled kid and his mood is really stable. And so the days when there are, there is more sugar, it's so obvious to me where it's coming from. It's, you see it at that 90 minute mark. We're melting down about the sandwich being cut the wrong way on that day. On most days we're not. And so it is, is so critical for people to understand and so much. And I love that you talked about the protein and the healthy fat piece, because I think people immediately think blood sugar balance is really difficult. And it's just like, let's not eat naked carbohydrates that are just spiking blood sugar. The pancake syrup and strawberries together is a triple spike up. That is a massive roller coaster and a hard, hard crash. It's how can we slow that down? Like, how can we make that last in their bodies a little bit longer? So so important. And I, am so glad that you touched on that. It's like all I'm talking about in my course and with the moms that I work with. So, so important. It it is. So it's so critical and it doesn't have to be complicated. And I think that's the biggest thing. And I'm sure you see that in your work. It's the biggest thing that keeps parents from sort of being willing to go down that path because their assumption is, this is going to be complicated. It's going to be too hard. My kid won't eat any of this. And I think just for people to understand that it actually can be simple and it is doable and to at least explore what you might notice as the changes, you know, with that, I think just an openness to that, especially if you have a child who's having some of these kinds of significant challenges, just opening your mind to saying what, what could be possible here in the realm of how I'm feeding my child and how their brain is functioning, just that openness to it, I think is an important starting point. Definitely. And, and the research is, it's like, I don't want to say it's like dire, but it's like, it's not, it's not great when it comes to sugar. Like you said, like kids on average are getting like 75 grams of sugar a day. It's like three times the average. So the kids are finding the sugar and carbohydrates. I always just say like, where's the protein? Where's the fat? Where's the fiber? Where's the greens? Like, are we adding veggies? Are we adding fat? Are we adding protein? Because they're going to get all the other stuff. It's really like, it's going to be checking in with yourself as a mom every six weeks or a couple months and going like, what sugar things have become a habit that I need to purge yeah. from the pantry again and again and again, because yeah. it's like always there. Uh, it, and it's insidious and it creeps in. And as your kids get older and you have less control over what they're eating, it is important to focus on what am I providing in the home to help balance that out, right? My kids understand and are aware of all of this and make varying choices now (laughs) in their teen through young adult um, years, but they have a foundation and understanding how their body and brain feel when they're eating one way versus another way. And, And they always sort of circle back to that if they get off track. But really as parents, all we can control is what we are providing in the home. So to look at, okay, I'm not going to try to micromanage everything my kid is doing outside the home, but I am going to be intentional about making sure that the meals that they eat here are well-balanced, that the snacks that I'm providing in the home are things that I feel good about them eating, are things that support blood sugar regulation, that support their brain and their body, um, and always, always pushing in things before taking away things. That is it is two or 20, it is going to go over a lot better. If you focus on putting some things into the diet, maybe some additional protein, some additional healthy fat, some additional produce before you start taking some things out. So that's just a little pro tip there. 
Heck yeah. Crowd out that plate with the good right. stuff. Crowd right. it out. It'll, yeah. Um, so let's, let's dive a little deeper into the body and the physiology and some of the symptoms that you see, you mentioned eczema, you mentioned, um, yeah. constipation, you know, someone, a child having sleep issues. Where do we, like, you obviously are, they're psychologists. How are, how are you diving in and, and yeah. helping support their parents to figure those things out? Yeah. It's one of the reasons I went back and got another degree in nutrition and integrative health was really to be able to, to look at these things more deeply and provide more support to people around this in addition to the, the psychology piece. And, you know, people say, well, God, you know, how can all these things be, well, what do you mean? You know, my child's eczema and, and constipation and chronic strep throat is related to their depression or their anxiety or their, you know, ADHD symptoms. And I think it comes down to, and, and this is, I'm sure a term that your audience, you know, has heard this, this, um, this inflammation, this chronic inflammation that happens. That's really what we are honing in on in the research is the common thing that ties all of this stuff together. When we have chronic ongoing inflammation in the body, whether it's a child or an adult, that can impact every system in the body and in the brain. Some of the most cutting edge, important research that we have, for example, in the field of depression is clearly showing that inflammation in the body, inflammation is a key driving force for the development of depressive symptoms just as inflammation uh, is, you know, an issue in uh, things like autoimmune disease, in things like eczema, in things like, you know, GI issues that kids might have. So this idea of inflammation, how do we keep inflammation levels down? That, that's important because that's really the piece that the research is showing ties all of this stuff together. And, you know, people often when they have a child, for example, who may be like chronic ear infections is such a common one, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, you hear all the time parents like, oh yeah, you know, he started getting ear infections at three months or six months of age. I mean, we went through two to three years of that with antibiotics and they go, but what would that have to do with the fact that, you know, he has ADHD now, or, you know, he um, is displaying symptoms of autism or is having all this anxiety. And we look at that and we say, well, this was a kid who during a key phase of development, not only was having an infectious process that the body had to deal with, but also was on antibiotics that then, as you mentioned earlier, uh, disrupted and changed the microbiome in the gut, which we know plays a huge role in brain development and brain function. And the research is getting clearer and clearer about that. And so you know, you say, well, you had all these things going on and that really shifted the trajectory then of their development in those areas and of how their brain is functioning. And so we have to go back and see if we can repair some of that, right? What can we do through diet? What can we do through lifestyle? What can we do through supplementation to help um, enrich that gut microbiome, to help balance things out in the body? If there is, you know, a chronic infection that is still sort of low level, there, which happens with kids. Uh, we can see that with Lyme. We can see that with strep. We can see that um, with things like Epstein-Barr, where they may not be having acute physical symptoms all the time, but the infection is still chronic at a low level, and it's causing disruption and inflammation in the body that then is impacting how the brain is functioning. So we need to be looking at all of those pieces, and that's why if you're a parent and your child is having some brain-based issues and behavioral kinds of challenges, I want you to really be thinking about what has their history been of physical issues, because those things are likely very, very connected. Even constipation, which is a common one. You know, parents will go, well, what does my child's, you know, lengthy history of constipation have to do? Well, what do, what do we do when we poop? We're detoxifying the body, Right. So a kid who's been chronically constipated their whole life, number one, we can say, well, we've got some problems with detoxing. Well, what happens when a body's not detoxing well? Well, we get a buildup of toxins in the system. What does that do? Well, that can cause a whole bunch of problems physically, but also in terms of brain health, brain development, brain function. Constipation is also an indicator that there are um, some issues going on in the gut. Very often what we see in kids with chronic constipation are some food allergies or food sensitivities. Well, guess what? If your child has a sensitivity to gluten, let's say, or to dairy or to corn or whatever it might be, 
and that is causing GI symptoms like chronic constipation, it is likely also causing neurological symptoms like inattentiveness, like hyperactivity, like high anxiety, low frustration tolerance, inability to sleep well. These things are all connected. And I'm I just, I think that it's so important for parents to be empowered to understand that those things are connected and that in order to treat what's going on in the brain and what's going on behaviorally, we've got to dig into what's going on physically because I have seen families spend years and years and years and a ton of time and energy and money doing behaviorally focused treatments, psychologically focused treatments, learning in school you know, oriented treatments. And if there are underlying physical issues that are not being addressed, you are going to hit a wall and you are not going to be able to progress past a certain point with all of those other beneficial interventions that you're doing. So we have to look at at all of these pieces. And that often involves finding professionals, whether it's uh, integrative physicians or functional medicine physicians or nutrition specialists, or, uh, you know, somebody like me, um, you know, who who is a psychologist that looks at things um, holistically or through a functional medicine lens that can help you dig into some of that. Some parents find as they become educated about these things through listening to a podcast like this, and they bring it to the attention of their pediatrician, that their pediatrician or their primary healthcare provider might be willing, you know, to look into it or at least to support, um, you know, with, okay, you heard about that. Well, you know, that could be helpful. Let's try that. But very often, especially if your child is having more chronic, more significant kinds of issues, you really do need to find a professional who is skilled at looking at all of that history and, and can run labs and can help you dig into that. I couldn't agree with you more. I just, it resonates so deeply with me, especially with a child who has food allergies and eczema. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, just in my personal experience that, that eggs were such a big problem for Sebastian. And we did the microdose introduction and got his tolerance up. But then there are certain, there was even just in the last few months, you notice I like gave him eggs and he was getting red spots and I, and then his nose was running and he was irritable. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to, I told my husband, I'm like, we're off eggs and dairy again. Like we weren't we're ever really back on dairy, but like, I'm like, we're, we're off eggs for a yeah. while. Like I need to see this through and see if yeah. this is connected because you don't really know until if they're constantly inundated with sugar, with food allergies, with yeah. all of this stuff, you, you, you're not going to see through the lens of like, wow, that's out of the normal realm for my child, or that's yeah. a, a symptom or I'm seeing something here. And, and so I, I mean, again, parenting is like this, it's this, it's this experiment where you're just trying your yes. best and you're going, okay, what's happening here. And, and I'm sure you as a parent, also a psychologist, it's me as a parent and, and a nutritionist, it's, I'm the hardest on myself when it comes yes. to stuff I should know, or yeah. I should notice, or I should you know, it's, it's interesting, but let's go a little bit further into what may affect a child's uh, mental state, whether that be sleep, screen time, the pandemic that they all just went Mm -hmm. through. We all just went through, but what are you seeing in your practice in regards to, to those lifestyle challenges? Yeah. Those lifestyle pieces are really important too. You know, we've got the nutrition piece, we've got the parent-child relationship, how we parent and communicate piece that we've talked about. But those lifestyle things are critical. Sleep is a big one. Sleep is, I think, one of the most underappreciated and underaddressed issues for kids. Because again, we tend to think of it through our lens of adult experience. And we have to understand that the research shows that for a child, even 30 minutes of lost sleep a night has a significant negative impact on their learning, their behavior, their attention, their mood the following day. So of course, there's going to be times, you know, where they're not going to get good sleep for whatever reason, but you need to really be prioritizing, making sure that your child is getting good sleep almost, you know, all the time. That should be a consistent thing. Sometimes the barrier is just parents needing some strategies for good sleep hygiene, for getting a good bedtime routine in place, you know, those types of things. Sometimes there are anxiety issues and we need to do some, you know, specialized uh, support for parents and kids around how to deal with nighttime fears, how to help kids get more comfortable and brave about sleeping, you know, by themselves, those kinds of things. Great. 
But sometimes there are very physiologically driven things going on. Uh, sleep apnea tends to be very under-recognized in kids. And when a child is having sleep apnea, um, they are not getting enough good quality sleep. And that has a profound impact. In fact, sleep is so important for kids. This is, you know, an interesting statistic, I think. Um, based on all the studies that have been done, somewhere between 25 and 40% of kids who end up with a diagnosis of ADHD actually have an undiagnosed or untreated sleep problem. And when you treat the underlying sleep issue, the symptoms of the ADHD either profoundly improve or they go away. And I have seen that in my practice. Kids who come in, when I do a thorough assessment of them, I'm like, wow, the problem here is this kid's not sleeping. And here's the thing for parents to know. It can seem like your child is sleeping. Parents will say, well, you know, he goes to bed at eight and he's, you know, uh, up at seven for school. He's getting a good number of hours of sleep. He doesn't come out in the night. But when we start looking at the quality of sleep and I start asking about things like, well, how restless is your child? Like what happens when you go on vacation and someone has to share a bed with the kid and they're like, oh, it's a nightmare, you know, kicks and thrashes all night. It's like, ah, that's a child who's not getting restful sleep. Parents will say, yeah, I go in his bedroom in the morning and, you know, the the pillows are all over the place and he's all in a crazy position. That's a child who probably is not getting quality, restful sleep. So it's not just looking at the obvious things like, is your kid getting up all the time in the night? Um, Are they struggling to fall asleep? Although those are important. It's what is the quality of sleep? And really, if it's not good quality and they're not getting enough, you have to address that because again, all the other interventions that we might do are not going to work as well and be as effective if they're not getting good sleep. So if your child snores, that is something to bring to the attention of the primary care provider and have addressed. Kids should not be snoring outside of the context of maybe having severe congestion from the occasional cold or something like that. If they are doing a lot of moving around in the night, if they are unable to fall asleep, you know, after a a reasonable period of time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, no matter what you do, they just can't seem to fall asleep or no matter what time they go to bed, they're up super early. A child who seems like they're sleeping well, but it is so hard to wake them in the morning. They are groggy. They're tired. They struggle to get going or they're super irritable immediately upon waking. These are all red flags that something is not going well sleep-wise, and that needs to be investigated and it needs to be um, addressed. So sometimes that can be a total game changer, you know, for some kids. And the screen time goes along with the sleep piece too, because screens are a big disruptor of sleep. You know, I have a hard and fast rule in my home and with the families that I work with, no devices in the bedroom at night, just none. There's no reason for it. Um, It does nothing but have the potential to create problems, especially as kids get older and they've got texts coming in and notifications and all of these things. It is not at all uncommon for me to have teenagers in my office who say, well, you know, my parents don't know, but you know, I maybe get three, four hours of sleep at night because I have to check my Snapchat and, you know, my, my friend is texting me and whatever. And parents often are completely unaware. And so to me, at least a starting point is no devices in the bedroom at night. And looking at how to help kids learn healthier device habits throughout the day, because we know that excessive screen time has a negative impact on all of our brains, but particularly on the brains of developing kids. And it can lead to increased irritability, mood problems, heightened anxiety, behavior challenges, attention issues, learning issues because of the impact that it has on, um, you know, eye function for reading. So all of these things that we want to really be looking at developing healthy device habits. And that's important because devices are a part of our kids' lives. They are a part of our lives. They're not going anywhere. So the solution isn't to just say, well, I'm not going to give them to my kid then, or I'm only going to let my kid have an hour on them. Well, okay. When they're really little, that's appropriate. But the reality of the world is that we need to help them learn how to better regulate their use of technology. And guess what is fundamental to that? That means us. Modeling. Improving with how we regulate ourselves with devices. I think it's a particular challenge for 
this generation of parents, those of us raising kids right now, because we're the first generation of parents having to deal with this. My school got its first desktop computer when I was in fifth grade. I got my first cell phone as an adult, right? So those of us raising kids right now, we are the first ones having to not only try to figure this out for ourselves, what does healthy technology use look like for us, but also what does that look like for our kids? How do we set limits around that? How do we help them regulate that? And we don't have anyone to look to as a guide because our parents didn't have to do that. So it's not like we can look at, well, what did my mom do about that? Well, that wasn't an issue because they weren't, you know, these things weren't around. So I want to have us all give um, ourselves a measure of grace for that because really we are the first ones having to figure this out. Um, But it is important to look at and to notice how your child is engaging with technology the amount of behavior that you're seeing around that. Kids have different levels of sensitivity. Some kids can use a device for an hour straight. And when the time is up, they can regulate themselves around that and move on. And some kids after 20 minutes are dysregulated mess. You have to look at what works or doesn't work for your child and put some structure and some limits and some parental monitoring and and some things in place if for no other reason than from a safety perspective, which is an entirely different conversation, but I think my work with teens has certainly opened my eyes to the amount of dangerous and problematic things that can happen for kids in an online environment that most parents just aren't even aware of, again, because it wasn't our experience growing up. So I think both from a safety and from a physical and mental health perspective, really looking at what is your child's relationship with screens, with tech, what is your family's relationship with that, um, and looking at some ways that you can kind of rein that in and make that more supportive of everyone's health. Um, I, I think that that's an important piece. Gosh, I love I love that so much. I love the no phones in the bedroom. We, Chris and I just bought a new house and he's like, what are you imagining? Imagining. And it's our first home. And I'm like, I want like a wellness home. Like I want it to just feel calm. And I want it. I want like the work to be put away. And I want, you know, I want a cubbies for phones. And he was like, you're crazy. And I'm like, no. And it, it just makes, I think about my childhood, the things that I loved growing up were like, camping and we're going to the beach and riding my bike out front and swimming in our backyard. Like, yes, I watched Disney movies, but you're right. Like I never had my own personal device. And I can tell you as an accidental influencer, like it's Mm -hmm. stress inducing and it's a habit and it's an addiction. And it's something that takes serious boundaries to even put your phone away as an adult. Like how would, again, it's like the same thing when it comes to processed foods. Like I'm constantly telling my clients to model healthy eating for their kids. It's like, we need to, it's so good to hear you say that. And it's something that I definitely personally as a mom want to do right with my kids because I don't, you know, you don't, you don't want dangerous situations, but you also just don't want your kids comparing themselves to other kids and feeling depressed or anxious or, It's a big issue. Uh, The research shows more and more, especially in the context of COVID, you know, with kids' device use increasing exponentially beyond what it already was. And what we're seeing in preteens and teens, particularly girls, um, is a significant increase in the amount of depression and anxiety symptoms. And really, it's not related to device use, it's related to social media use. Yeah. So there's this idea too of how we're using our devices matters. Five hours a day on a device could be fine depending on how it's being used, right? Five hours a day on a device constantly absorbed in social media for a 13-year-old, probably not going to be supportive of their mental health. Mm -hmm. And so again, looking at how devices are being used, and and I'll give another simple starting point because I know some parents might be listening and they're going, man, I don't know how to backtrack on this. Like we're all just devices all the time. My kids are going to freak out if I, you know, start to put limits on. Okay. So no devices in the bedroom at night, because that's just a hard and fast safety rule. But another simple starting point that I encourage all families to do is device-free mealtimes. 
So, and I encourage family meals at least as often as you can do them because the research is so clear that sitting down together, even two people, even a child and a parent, even if it's not the whole family, provides so many beneficial, you know, mental health. Uh, it's just, it's such a proactive strategy to use that provides so many benefits. So, but putting devices away at mealtimes. Because not only does that allow us to be more mindful about our eating and our food choices, but it also meals are supposed to be about social relationships, really, and communicating and being with one another. Devices get in the way of all of that. And devices actually really do get in the way of kids being mindful about the food choices. People with picky eaters, you know, say, oh, you know, I don't don't know what to do about this. Well, one of the things is your child needs to be exposed to food, even if they're not eating it. If they're consumed with a device while they're eating, they're not taking in the visuals, the smells, the sounds of the different foods on the table, even if they're not eating them. So there's a thousand reasons why we want to be doing device-free mealtimes. And it can be as simple as this is what we're doing from now on. Here's the box. As we all come to the table, put it in there. Us two as parents, putting them away, we're all going to survive for the next 20 minutes. And that can be a nice doable starting point for families. So pick something small. If you're a family that really, you know, your kids are constantly consumed with devices, pick one area, one thing like a mealtime and just start there and then expand out. I love it. Such a positive approach to making us feel like we can get this done and make it happen. No phones at mealtimes, no phones in the bedroom. That's going to be hard and fast for me. I, you know, part of me is like, hopefully by the time Sebastian gets older, they're going to be, their generation is going to be cool enough to think that social media is horrible and they never want to be a part of it. But um, I can hope, right? Yeah. Yeah. It'll just, it'll be the whole next wave of things. That's one of the things that's challenging for parents too, is trying to stay on top of it. Right. And I have so many parents that just go, I don't even try because it's all too confusing. I don't understand. You know, it's too complicated. Well, you know what? Our kids need us to keep to keep trying. And, you know, it's important. We can't shield them from everything, nor should we. You know, it's important, especially as they get older, for them to have to navigate difficult situations and things. But we need to be partnering with them and helping to guide them and talking with them about what they're seeing and what they're exposed to. You know, it's just important that we keep making an effort, even if we know that we're far from perfect with it, just continue making the effort. That's really, that's really what matters with all of this stuff, right? Is that we are engaged and making an effort that we're trying to do a little bit better today than we did yesterday. And and I have this idea about parenting, um, you know, people feel like they need to aim for perfection, right? Like, oh, I screwed up or, oh, I had to be perfect with it. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. And I think if we all gave ourselves the um, grace of, I call it trying to parent 300. If you think about batting averages in baseball, those of you that follow baseball, what's a great batting average? 300 is a great batting average, right? We say, wow, you know, that's amazing. Well, that means that the player hit the ball three out of 10 times. If we can aim for that with our parenting, like, Hey, I'm just going to try to get it right three out of 10 times because we're going to screw it up more often than we get it right. Whether it's the tone that we use or the way that we respond to a behavior challenge, or it's the thing that we feed our kids, or it's the modeling that we do around devices or bedtime or whatever, we are going to screw it up (laughs) a lot. And being able to embrace that and go, yup, that is part of the process. I am a human raising another human. It's a messy thing. I'm going to probably screw it up more than I get it right. But if I can aim to get it right at least three out of 10 times and pat myself on the back for that and say, I will you know, continue to try again tomorrow. I think that's what it's all about. I love it. That is a phenomenal way to end today's podcast, leaving people on a high note. We're going to model imperfection. So our child doesn't expect perfection of themselves. Love it. Absolutely. Oh, Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for being here. You've given me full body chills a number of times on this podcast. I'm like pumped up to be the best parent I can be, but not perfect. So um, where can people follow along and learn more about your practice? Yeah. So my website is drberkins.com and it's B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S. But drberkins.com, I've got lots of uh, articles, videos, all kinds of resources and things there. Um, I have a book, Life Will Get Better, which is written specifically for parents. You can find that on my website or on Amazon or other places where you find books. Um, 
my podcast, The Better Behavior Show, where we really delve into all of these kinds of topics and more. And then, of course, social media. I'm um, mostly on Instagram uh, these days, but also on Facebook and it's Dr. Nicole Birkin. So come join the fun there, follow along, uh, say hi, let me know you listened um, to this podcast. I'm, I'm just excited that I had a chance to connect with your community. Yeah, absolutely. We will put all of those links in the show notes so people can find you easily. And I'm just so excited to get this one out here, out there in the world. Thank you so much for your time and for and for taking a holistic look at our kids. It's really making a difference. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 